Hey, hello everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode on the Classic English Literature Subcast. On our last full podcast episode, we had a look at Sir Thomas Wyatt, who some have called the father of the English sonnet, because he introduced the form from Italy. Well, it must be said that this is no case of virgin birth or parthenogenesis, and as accepting as we now are of alternative parenting arrangements, I feel it incumbent upon me to let you know that there is another father in the mix, that the sonnet is the privileged scion of a two-parent home and has grown up sturdy and strong. Okay, well, what I'm saying is, is that the bloke named Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey, has as great a claim to the soubriquet father of the English sonnet. Now, while we're on it, why are there only fathers in such instances? We call Chaucer the father of English literature and Wyatt the father of the sonnet, but we don't call Marjorie Kemp the mother of English autobiography or Mary Shelley the mother of science fiction, which she is, by the way. A lot of cultural anxiety about male potency swimming underneath here, don't you think? Anyway. The other dad, Henry Howard, lived but briefly, executed for treason at the age of 30 in 1547. But it was bound to happen. He was a courtier, had been the childhood friend of Henry Fitzroy, that's the Duke of Richmond and Henry VIII's illegitimate son, and he was a cousin to, wait for it, Anne Boleyn. He had been in Chokey a few times for punching another courtier and for wandering about the night streets, breaking windows, you know, as you do. He sounds a bit of an upper-class punk, the kind of arrogant, bullying, rich kid who became the antagonist in every second 80s teen movie. He certainly did not like the great unwashed, clashing with the new men of Henry's court, non-aristos who wielded considerable influence particularly the very powerful Thomas Cromwell, whom he called, quote, a foul churl. History has been clear that people who cross Cromwell seldom thrive. But in those brief, turbulent decades, uh, Henry Howard made an indelible impression on the character of English verse. He's credited with the development of blank verse, which is unrhymed iambic pentameter, The iambic line, which, as we've seen, can be a quite supple and natural-feeling meter for English, can nonetheless feel rigid over long poems if rhyme, especially in heroic couplets, features prominently. Blank verse, by dispensing with the rhyme, retains the lissom rhythm but avoids any predictability. He used it to great effect in his translations of Virgil's Aeneid, that great Roman epic. Here's a brief passage from Book 4, often called The Night Piece, contrasting the silent night with Dido's fear that Aeneas will desert her. Quote, It was then night. The sound and quiet sleep had through the earth the wearied bodies caught. The woods, the raging seas were fallen to rest, when that the stars had half their course declined. The fields whist, beasts and fowls of divers hue, and whatso that in the broad lakes remained, or yet among the bushy thicks of briar, laid down to sleep by silence of the night, 
can swage their cares, mindless of travails past. You can sense the structured rhythm of the passage, but at no time does it feel rote and monotonous. It feels like elevated prose. This elasticity will open English to some of its greatest achievements. The Elizabethan dramatists, most famously Marlowe and, of course, Shakespeare, composed their plays in blank verse. In the century following them, John Milton renders perhaps the greatest English epic, Paradise Lost, in this mighty meter. So I think we all owe Henry a thank you. I thank you. Especially since he gets little credit for his other contribution to poetry, the Shakespearean sonnet. Yeah, Surrey develops the pattern and then Shakespeare gets his name on it. Basically, Surrey takes Wyatt's version of Petrarch's version, breaks the octave sestet scheme into three quatrains, rhyming A-B-A-B, C-D-C-D, E-F-E-F, and then a final heroic couplet, G-G. This expands the rhyme pool to seven sounds, so there's greater flexibility. As I said, though, Shakespeare takes this structure and just writes some of the world's greatest poetry, and so poor Surrey suffers the curse of the very talented who compare unfavorably to genius. But very talented still deserves attention, don't you think? Here's one of Surrey's better-known sonnets, adapted from Petrarch's Sonnet 109, or 140, depending on who's doing the counting. It's called Love That Doth Reign. Love that doth reign and live within my thought, and built his seat within my captive breast, clad in arms wherein with me he fought, oft in my face he doth his banner rest. But she that taught me love and suffer pain, my doubtful hope and ache my heart desire with shamefaced look to shadow and refrain, her smiling face converteth straight to ire. In coward love, then, to the heart apace taketh his flight where he doth lurk and plain, his purpose lost, and dare not show his face. For my lord's guilt thus faultless bide I pain, yet from my lord shall not my foot remove. Sweet is the death that taketh end by love. Oh, 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 sir, sir. Yes, imaginary, enthusiastic, and polite pupil. The poem doesn't rhyme the way you said, sir. No? No, sir. The first two quatrains rhyme like you said, sir, but the third quatrain reverts to the C rhyme instead of introducing an F rhyme, sir. So the couplet rhymes FF, sir, with no G. Very well spotted, imaginary, enthusiastic, and polite pupil. And that is exactly how all my classes always go. Slice of life. Anyway, the first quatrain introduces the conceit of a personified love in the role of a knightly champion or conqueror. Now note the military diction. Reign, seat, captive, arms, fought, and banner. Sir Love has subdued the speaker, made him a vassal. The second quatrain switches our attention to the speaker's beloved, 
a woman impatient with the romantic size and gallant gestures of her wooer. She rejects his displays of love and becomes angry. She has bested Sir Love. Quatrain three remarks upon Love's cowardice as he retreats, quote, his purpose lost. But the speaker, the victim of this battle, remains loyal to his master, though he suffers for Sir Love's disgrace. Then we get the Volta. Yet. Always handy when the poet signposts the shift for you. Quote, Yet my lord shall not my foot remove. Sweet is the death that taketh end by love. The speaker keeps his fidelity to love because it is sweet to die for it. Dolce et decorum est. Now, if you note the rhymes that get repeated, the reintroduction of the C rhyme in the third quatrain, you see that line 12 repeats line 5. The word is pain, crucial for the poem's meaning. Line 10, plain, is a diminution of the word complain, and rhymes with line 7, refrain. A word that, as a verb, means both holding back or preventing oneself, and it makes sense, but if we allow ourselves to think of it as a noun, it means a line or phrase repeated at intervals. So, Maybe the sound of the rhymes themselves are a kind of refrain. Hmm. I was about to tee up another one of Sori's sonnets, and as I read this one over, I notice that it, too, doesn't really follow the standard format I indicated above. So, look, you just have to trust me that Surrey developed what became the Shakespearean sonnet, even though the two examples I've selected vary that format. See if you can spot the variation in Alas, so all things now do hold their peace. Alas, so all things now do hold their peace. Heaven and earth disturbed in no thing, the beasts, the air, the birds, their song do cease. The night is car, the stars about doth bring, calm is the sea, the waves work less and less. So am not I, whom love, alas, doth ring, bringing before my face the great increase of my desires, whereat I weep and sing, in joy and woe as in a doubtful case. For my sweet thoughts sometime do pleasure bring, but by and by the cause of my disease gives me a pang that inwardly doth sting, when that I think what grief it is again to live and lack the thing should rid my pain. Oh, sir, sir, yes, imaginary, enthusiastic, and polite pupil. The odd-numbered rhymes in the quatrains are all A rhymes, if we allow for slant rhymes, and all the even lines are B rhymes. I am very impressed, imaginary, enthusiastic, and polite pupil. This sonnet is actually a reworking of Petrarch's reworking, of the passage from Surrey's translation of Virgil's Aeneid, the night piece that we read earlier. It concerns a speaker yearning for something that upsets his tranquility, a tranquility he notes in all the world around him. The poem frequently makes use of Petrarchan contrasts, joy and woe, pleasures and pangs, and so on. But its rhyme pattern is not its only weirdness, 
The first quatrain notes the peacefulness of the world and all its animals and includes a rather strange two-syllable pronunciation of the possessive knights as knightes, necessary for the iambic, don't you know? That notion continues in line five, but at the end of that line, we get something of a volta, weird, in the middle of a quatrain. The line ends with a colon, indicating a subordinate clause to follow, and that is, so am not I, contrasting the speaker's turbulent emotional state with nature's placidity. And we get another pseudo-volta at line 10, same punctuation introducing a similar contrast. So, what can we make of all this? Well, allow me to propose that the ABAB structure for the quatrains provides something of an ambiguous stability, a kind of stasis, which nicely underlines the idea of, quote, holding peace brought up in the first line. But the ambiguity arises because the A rhymes are indeed often slanted. So there's always the possibility of things being disturbed, such disturbedness, is evident in the oddly placed pseudo-voltas. Why? Well, the noun in the last line I find rather curious. The speaker laments living and lacking, quote, the thing should rid my pain. But why thing? Why such a vague word? You could easily plug love in there, and it seems like that's what he's pining over. He does personify love in line six as his tormentor. But Surrey doesn't repeat love in the last line. He chooses thing. So what thing? Actually, it's a repetition from line two, how no thing disturbs heaven and earth. I don't really know why Surrey uses this word. I would only be speculating, unless the speaker himself is not sure what he lacks, what it is that troubles him. Some kind of free-floating anxiety? Answers on the back of a $20 bill. So, there you have it, Sonnet fans. A quick look at one of the form's early architects. Just wanted to give him some respect. Next time, we'll give poetry a rest and dip into a prose allegory by one of the most influential men of the Tudor period. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. <laughs>